So that, that comes back onto this emotion. Um, so deadlines create emotion, like the hostage situation, right. I suppose that drove up emotion. If you're negotiating with someone in business, or even if you're trying to de- resolve a resolution, and you really feel that you're in the right and they're in the wrong. Um, my guess is that there's a lot of emotion attached to right. the conversation. I've been there and, and it's quite difficult. So what, what's your advice about managing emotion when you're the one that's negotiating and you're trying to get collaboration, long-term partnership, but also to get the right end of, of the deal? How have you learned to kind of, or what tips and advice have you got to manage that? Yeah, and that's a great question because I'd like to draw a fine line in that question too because normally when we're talking about emotion as if it's a bad thing, we're talking about negative emotions. And negative emotions are a bad thing. Sean Acker, Harvard psychologist, did a great TED Talk called um, uh, The Happiness Advantage, The Business of Happiness. You know, I, I, I cite his talk all the time. I, you, you'd think I'd remember the title. The Happy Secret to Better Work. So it's the source of my data. Sean says you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Salespeople are 37% more effective in a positive frame of mind. What's the flip side of that coin? When you're in a negative frame of mind, you're dumber. (laughs) Not only are you dumber, but you have even more self-righteousness. Give a talk when you're angry. It'll be the greatest speech you ever regret. There's a self-righteousness, this downward spiral. So what do you do about it personally? One of the hacks is to be genuinely curious. Like, where are you coming from? I mean, really, I'm curious as to what makes you think that in your attitude. Because you can't be in a negative frame of mind and genuinely curious at the same time. That's a quick hack. You need these sorts of devices because as a human being, our survival wiring is default mechanism negative we're wired absent any other influence we wake up in a negative frame of mind because it kept us alive when we were actually running away from saber-toothed tigers on a jungle path we've all inherited this default wiring it's in our limbic system there's a thing in there called the amygdala everybody's heard of the amygdala hijack or seeing red or the reptilian brain that's something that we got to struggle with all the time. So you need a regular process to keep yourself in a positive frame of mind because it makes you smarter. And the alternative is to be dumber in a negative mindset. Mm. And and does that link into to to fear as well? Because I suppose yeah. depending on what the negotiator it does, right? Yep. Okay. And you so know, the and, same- and fear hides itself too. Like if you say, "Well, I'm concerned. I'm worried." Um, that's fear with a different mask on. And if you've got a concern about something, it's a great indicator to you that you got some negativity you got to deactivate because it's holding you back otherwise. Hmm. And, and do you, um, in, in that situation, would, you, would it be advisable to hold showing any of that fear? You know, is it, I, I suppose you've been, you've been there. You seem very calm no matter what the situation is. But is that... When you're in that situation, do you not want someone to understand how you're feeling, your emotions, and if you're fearful, and because that will work against you? Well, um, it's more in your demeanor. And uh, again, you can do another override. The late night FM DJ voice <laughs> is a great way to control your own emotions. Like if I'm in a negotiation and I'm concerned about what's going to happen, if I say in the late night FM DJ voice, Look, I'm concerned this is headed the wrong direction. I'm going to get two advantages from that, probably three. You're going to see me as being really genuine. And that's going to cause you to bond to me. It's going to give me more influence with you. What we call trust-based influence. At the same time, I will have deactivated those fears in my head by naming them. And also by me hearing the late night FM DJ voice, it actually calms me down not to just use it, but to hear myself use it. So there's a whole bunch of advantages to calling it out 
in a practiced voice that has a tendency to also override those emotions. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's a it's a fine line, and I, I like what you've said. Is I, I can't remember the term you just used, but like the trust based um, influence, trust where based influence. yeah, you it, you it is being honest, but it's it's probably being honest in a way where you're not letting your emotions get the better of you. Yep, because they shouldn't be getting the better of you, uh, <laughs> which is kind of a, it's almost like two opposites working. But um, yes, yeah, so yeah. it's an interesting, it's, it's an interesting sort of uh, distinction. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair, you get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. I'm a little nervous about asking this question to law enforcement professionals because it's more on the emotional side, but okay. I'm headed to... Uh, a pretty aggressive custody negotiation and okay. um, so there's 17 years of hurt feelings on this and so um, I'm really worried about having an emotional reaction and mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to get out of my head to mirror and label for that person um, and not get overwhelmed in that situation and I wondered I'm sure you don't start to cry in hostage negotiation situations, but I'm just wondering if you have any advice for that. Yeah, sure. And I'd be happy, happy to add in some thoughts. And then what I'm actually going to do is, is throw it to a real hostage negotiator. I'm going okay. to ask for Troy's thoughts on this, because for those of you who don't know, I was te never technically in law enforcement, okay. but I'm blessed to work with many, many uh, uh, legendary law enforcement professionals and, and they're on the call with us and Troy's one of them. And so he runs uh, a couple classes for us. One is a, we call caviar, which is all about mindset going in and, and understanding what your triggers are a little bit and how to combat those. So I'll add a thought and then Troy, I'll throw it to you. My first thought is simply going to be mental preparation. Know that you are going to get triggered. Like no matter how hard I try, something's gonna happen that's gonna trigger me here. And if, if you're at least mentally prepared for knowing the punch is coming, you'll be that much more ready for it when it does come. And then secondarily, um, focusing on simply putting all your focus on the skills, which is not an easy thing to do, especially in a highly emotional state. It is not easy to do because we get so caught up in like, that's wrong. I need to tell you why it's wrong and I need to correct you, right? It's hard to fight that. But if we can switch mentally to just like, what skill do I need to drop in here to diffuse this? What skill do I need to drop in? Because, right, they got a lot of adrenaline running through their system right now and I need to drop in dopamine because I need them positive and I got to get rid of this adrenaline stuff what's the skill that I can use to actually trigger dopamine that at least will, will um, damper down the thoughts of like, you idiot, how could you, I can't believe you son of a, right? And, and at least if we're focused on the skills. So those, those are two things I would add quickly. Troy, what, what else would you add to this? Because this, this definitely falls in your wheelhouse of expertise. You definitely want to stay curious. If you're staying curious and asking, why are they saying these things? Why are they behaving this way? It's going to take away the emotional side of it for you mostly, where you're, you're searching for answers for them. What, what make them say that? What, what is making them behave that way? And for yourself, you want to get with a trusted colleague and vent before you go into the room or before you, before you actually go on the call or sit down with, across from that individual. You want to vent about all the things that you think are going to happen or going to come up in that room that's going to be an issue. But you want to find somebody that's going to be positive when they talk to you, because if you go in there and they've already fed you full of negative stuff, you're going to have a negative mindset going in. You want to have a positive mindset. And one of the things that Brandon said that is so important when he was talking about the person getting angry or getting upset, they can only do it for 45 seconds to a minute. If you can hold on for that ride, you're gonna be okay. They wear themselves out. They don't realize how much stress 
and how fatiguing it becomes for them. So when they do that, the longer you can sustain your, your calm, you're going to wear them down. And they're finally going to just throw their hands up and like, Shh. but if you get angry and they get angry, they talk about the amygdala, you're going to have two dumb people in the room and you can't, and it don't work when you have that. Right. Do you have any suggestions? He'll have a lawyer in that situation as well as himself. And so I'm trying to figure out how to control both personalities because one's an accommodator and one's an analyst, I think. And I'm the lawyer's more unknown to me. So I'm trying to figure out how to control those personalities. When there's two personalities coming at me at the same time, how to control that scenario. Labels and mirrors. Okay. You just seems like both of y'all want to talk at the same time. It sounds like one has an agenda. The other one has an agenda. Thank you. That was excellent. Yeah, that's great, Troy. Great, great addition, man. You can, it's easy to see why we got him teaching this stuff on a regular basis. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see, there's something in the chat here from Jamie. All right, Melvin employee working outside of her scope, doing a test only nurses allowed, employee refused to own what she did. During step two grievance meeting, a union rep lost his school and verbally attacked me, saying I was on a witch hunt. It was uh, racially motivated. All right, interesting. How do you come back from that? All right, excellent. So, um, Jamie, do you currently have a uh, um, a meeting set up to talk to this person, or do you have to construct that? Yeah, so the, the meetings are kind of constructed at this point. So the process is um, if a person gets a corrective action, um, they can grieve it. And there's a step one grievance in which the manager replies okay. after the meeting. There's a step two in which the HR rep replies. And then there's a step three in which a different uh, HR rep and a different union rep will look at the case like independently mm -hmm. and see if it's uh, can be resolved. Otherwise, it could possibly go to arbitration. Okay. Okay. Very good. So you're getting ready. It sounds like you're getting ready to walk into step three. Yeah. So I'm kind of uh, my part in is is probably over at this point in terms of they. Uh, the next step, they may come to me to ask more questions. Uh, we investigated the case, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of threw the entire meeting off the rails. And it's like, I tried to do the labeling and the mirroring and all that, but I was kind of at a loss at that point as to where to go from there. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah, this is a tough one. And, and, and one of the things that I've, I'm not a huge fan of with with any kind of bureaucracy type is uh, the layers of red tape that they start putting between yeah. the two people that actually have the issue to separate them as opposed to allowing them to work it out similar to kind of what Catherine was talking about right she's there's more degrees of separation between her and her counterpart because of the situation and you're dealing with a similar thing and i worry about once it gets too far if there's there's so many degrees between us that it's it's almost impossible to come back yeah that's what it feels like yeah, and 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 I, yeah, yeah, I would imagine that's how it feels. So, um, the first thing that I would that I personally would try to do, and 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 Troy, I'll ask you to lean in on this as well if you got any additional thoughts. Um, trying to get in a room one on one with this individual to actually talk them down and have a have a one to one interaction. Yeah. And and to the tune of either writing, um, you know, an email that's a short email, like, is, is it impossible for us to, to, to sit down and actually uh, see if we can work this out? Or, um, you know, I don't I don't I'm not sure the complete context. It's interesting how much of an effect handwritten letters have. Yeah. And this is at any at any at any place in business, right? Real estate, I think, is is probably the best at using it consistently. Yeah. But when someone is looking at like a handwritten thing, it you know that the effort went into it. You know yeah. that you're not BSing. You didn't have some assistant type your email. Yeah. 
like you actually sat down and wrote this out. And again, keeping it short and sweet, no right fights, right? No justifications, all accusations, audits. And again, you know, is it, is it at this point, is it, is it a complete impossibility for us to sit down and see if we can figure out how we got here? Yeah. Right. And something to that effect. And then when you sit down with the person and, and especially when it comes to racially charged things and in this day and age, right, that's so sensitive. And I would probably lead with that, you know, yeah. to a certain degree, like you, you based on how the world is spinning these days, you feel like you're probably climbing extra hurdles that are unnecessary. And then we have this issue with me where I seemingly make it worse for you. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's right. It is. The world is hard. And then you come along and you threw gasoline on a fire as a, as a way to kind of start that interaction with them. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that's where I'd come from. Troy, uh, what, what, what additional thoughts or process suggestions would you give for Jamie on this? one? Those were good comments, Brandon, uh, Jamie, they, they want to be heard. Yeah. You, you know it and I know it. They, they want to be heard spend some time allowing them to vent to get it off of their chest and then one of the things that have always been told taught to me was if you come to me with the problem come to me with the solution it may not be the best but at least it's a starting point so when you're talking to them you want to you want to uh phrase your 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 labels and seems like you have a solution may have a solution for how we can move forward. Things like that, now they're part of the team. Y'all are working together. You're hearing them because the first thing they're going to say is you don't understand. You you know, it's, it's a, if it's a race thing, they're going to feel like no matter what you say, you don't understand. So get them to vent, get them to be part of the team, to come up with help with the solution. May not be the best, but say, and, and, and you don't have to agree to it. You just say, hey, at least we're starting on the right foot. We're moving in the right direction. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point. It's something else, just one last thing I'll add to that. It just is piggybacking off of what Troy said in that we don't understand, right? We're dealing with someone who's got something as as uh, volatile as some sort of a racial issue. What's interesting is to Troy's point, a lot of times the understanding is really what it takes to solve it and letting them know, no matter what I say, I'd imagine you feel like I don't understand. No matter what comes out of my mouth, I'd imagine it feels like I still don't get it or I haven't got my mind wrapped around the situation completely. Sometimes that's all it takes. Like, yeah, that's right. You don't get it. Now I'm happy to go back to work, right? I'm yeah. happy. I'm happy to fall back in line. Okay. Yeah. So making part of the accusations audit is, is, is a good way to drop it in too. But great question. What do you got for us? Thanks. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious if you can shed some insight on how to deal with people who seem to be operating against their own best interest. Great question. Oh, I like that question a lot. All right. So first of all, I would, uh, as, as a preparation for dealing with this person, I'd probably want to have an iMessage ready because that could easily be dropped into an iMessage because it seems like you're operating against your own self-interest, right? When you state behavior, exhibit whatever behavior, I feel like we're spinning our wheels. I feel like we're not getting anywhere. I feel like um, I'm not giving you the support that you actually need because it seems like you're working against your own self-interest, right? So I would, I would construct an iMessage like that, have it ready to go, lead in with an, with an accusations audit, or if there's a lot of tension against you personally, the old Tommy Corgan, no oriented question, have have I wronged you in some way? It seems like I put you in a bad spot. Have I wronged you in some way? Yes, you have, Josh. And these are the things. And whatever they state, 
right? You're going to want to label and mirror, and that may in fact solve the problem. Let's say they clam up and they don't say anything, right? Then the, all right, no, no, you haven't, Josh. Okay, well, the following is going to be really tough to hear, and it's going to make me sound like I'm attacking you. When you X, I feel X because it seems like you're working against yourself, right? And now, now you're into the conversation. But I think I think that's a great question, and and, and leading in in that way is is at least gonna you're gonna gain some ground. Thank you. Yeah, man. Great, great. Uh, and then Brandon, what do you what do you got for us, man? Uh, so I have less of a question and more of just a. a I guess, comment or observation for like uh, the Catherine and Jamie's um, situations. And sure, if you got uh, some, feel thoughts, free to, please. <clears throat> yeah, feel free to contextualize this either Brandon or Troy. But in, you know, I went through <clears throat> several years of therapy where like it, one of the key factors of these techniques being successful is this mindset thing that they've been talking about. And one of those, one of those things is like the concept of boundaries, right? Especially when you're very close to somebody and they're like, you're being an asshole and you're like, Oh my God, am I, is it really me? Like, and, and you lose the objectivity. That's like, no, 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 you might be, but that's not the relevant part. The relevant part is like, this is their thought. This is what they think. Right. And part of achieving the tactical empathy, in my opinion, is staying in that space of, what is this person thinking? Not what are they claiming? Not are their claims true, per se, but like, is like, how can I demonstrate to them that um, I, I, I understand what they're saying? Not that I agree with it. And this is where the therapy came in, because I really had a problem for myself where people would make claims and I'd be like, I, I would lose my I would lose my cool because I'd just assume that their claim had to be true. But if you can maintain that distance and maintain that internal barrier, it can make application of these techniques much more consistent, you know? So that's just my two cents. Yeah, I think, I, actually, I think that's a great point. I'm glad you added that in because I think that very much speaks to something we looked at uh, in class one when I wasn't with you guys and we just touched on it real quick last class. The, the levels of listening right, kind of our listening stairway. And the top level is when you can connect what they say to a life narrative, to a deep-rooted motivation or experience, right, when you can, we can start to wrap our mind around how what they said relates directly to those things, then we're, we're thinking at a deeper level, right? We're digging deeper, we're looking for the underlying dynamics to your point. So, yeah, very much a mindset shift and, and going back to something Catherine said earlier in regards to triggers, something that's helped me greatly and I've seen it help others greatly is, you know, we talk a lot about go-tos in general, right? I have a list of go-to labels, I have a list of go-to oriented questions. Well, the other thing that's really helpful is if you have a go-to skill that you always use when you feel yourself heating up. For me personally, it's labels. You know, I, I'm, I'm under, of the mindset I can label my way into or out of anything, right? Just by making a solid verbal observation. There's a, another friend and, and uh, we've done some work with, um, her name is, oh, her name escapes me at the moment. She, she works for uh, Compass Realty down in, in the Atlanta area and, and is very successful. When she feels herself getting triggered, she summarizes. Like that's her instant thing. Like, okay, I'm getting triggered, which means we're off kilter and I need to get a that's right from my counterpart. And she instantly goes into summary whenever she feels herself heating up. Chris Voss, right? The famous author, his thing is calibrated questions. That's where he goes when he feels himself getting heated up. So some of it is just knowing which skill you feel most comfortable with and then making that your go-to answer when we feel ourselves getting triggered, that's a, that's a, that's a big first step. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you added that, Brandon. I mean, obviously, we, we are huge components of understanding is the foundation to trust, respect, influence, likability, pretty much every road we want to access when it comes to negotiation 
it all starts with the with the show and understanding. So it's, that's a great point. Did you ever wonder what are the emotional intelligence secrets that FBI hostage negotiators use to get their way, and whether or not they would do you any good in your business or personal negotiations? So after all, if there's a bank robbery with hostages, which I have negotiated, and there's four hostages, does the hostage negotiator says, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we meet in the middle and we'll call it a day? You, you really can't compromise when you're a hostage negotiator, and that's, that's the way that I learn negotiation. So I'll, I'll take you through a little bit of how I got to learn it and how I began to apply it in my business and professional life. And it really started on a night in late winter in New York City. Well, after dark, I left the, the FBI office, 26 Federal Plaza, and fought my way through traffic to get to a suicide hotline. I was volunteering on the suicide hotline because I'd been told that that was the best way to become a hostage negotiator, the best experience. And as a side note, I will tell you, it's, a, it's the best way to learn how to really listen to people on an emotional intelligence perspective. So I got to the hotline that night, and I picked up the phone, and I answered the phone, and my uh, hotline voice, hello, this is Helpline, which was the, came to be known as the late night FM DJ voice, <laughs> which now I refer to as the late night FBI DJ voice. But the voice on the other end of the phone just blurted out. He says, I, I, need, I need your help. I need your help. I've got to put a lid on this day. I've got to bring a lid to this day. And I listened to him, and I, and I sensed that he was frantic. So that's exactly what I said. I said, you sound frantic. And immediately I could, I could feel a change in his tone of voice. And his voice came down. I felt strength come into his voice. And he started to talk to me. And he began to tell me uh, his issue was that he was battling the disease of paranoia. And he was going to go on a car trip the next day with his family. And in, he knew that on that car trip, because of his paranoia, he would get completely wound up and, and overcome with the paranoia. So since it was going to happen the next day, that night he was overcome with paranoia, thinking about the paranoia for the next day. And it completely wrapped himself up and needed to put a lid on the day. So as we began to talk, uh, he began to tell me also about how much his family was helping him. And I used something that I'd, someone else had once said to me, and I remember how strong it was because I was explaining to a colleague of mine how involved my family was and how supportive they were. And at that time, my colleague said to me, it sounds like your family's really close. And when he said that to me, I remember how good it felt and how it just drew together everything that I was feeling and how I felt myself strengthened when he said that. So I said to this, the same thing to this man on the phone. I said, it sounds like your family's really close. And he says, yeah, we are. And so then he began and he continued to talk and he talked and he began to tell me all the things that he was doing in order to battle the paranoia. And I was, I was very impressed with it. He sounded like a very determined man to me. So I said to him, you sound really determined. And he said, he said, you know, I am determined. He said, you know, I'm going to go on that car trip tomorrow, and I'm going to be fine. Thanks for everything you did for me. And he hung up. <laughs> now, I said three things to him, just three simple things. And I didn't know it at the time. And I was just explaining to a friend of mine, at brunch just the other day, he was telling me he used to write for Hollywood, and he said, you know, what you're saying about what you do makes all the sense in the world. I never would have guessed what you were doing, but once you explain it, it makes all the sense in the world. It's like a great Hollywood ending. You have no idea what's coming at the end of a, of a movie, but when it happens, it makes sense. And that's what hostage negotiators do, and we do now do in business. We take things that you all know about, but we combine them in ways that make them incredibly powerful that no one ever sees. Troy, question for you that, that came up too, in regards to getting knocked off your feet to a certain degree, right? So uh, let me pull the question up. I, I, lost, I lost my place here. Please forgive me. Okay. This comes from a, from a guy named Brandon, which love the name. 
Great name, right? Have you ever been triggered emotionally when negotiating that you've had an emotional response that isn't positive, be it sadness, anger, et cetera, that now has thrown you off your negotiations because you're worried it's going to happen again? How do you work through that, right? So you talk about mindset all the time. You get triggered and now you're almost gun shot because you know that you've been triggered and you don't want to allow yourself to, to react that way in the moment. But now you're throwing off your game because you're so worried about reacting negatively. How do you, how do you get through that, man? What do you do? Yeah, that's such a really good question because all of us as former negotiators in the, in the law enforcement world, you know, when you sit down in the chair, you don't never know what to expect. And there's that, always that, op that option or chance that that may happen. So one of the things is we've tried to prepare before we sit in that seat. We start, you know, stay, making sure we stay curious. We have to accept the fact that at some point we're probably going to get attacked. And if you can ride that out for 45 seconds to a minute, you're going to get past it. One of the most important things that you're going to have to do is you're going to have to vent. Find somebody that you trust. Vent about the things that you know that may come up, especially if they've come up in the past and they haven't been dealt with. You want to be able to vent and get that, get through that and have, have a positive session with somebody that you trust so that you go into the the, uh, the next negotiation in a positive mindset. And if you get triggered while you're actually in the negotiation, label yourself. Take the time to label yourself and, 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 and help diffuse it for yourself so that you can get back in the game. Don't let somebody knock you on your behind and then you fall out of the game and feel like you don't have a chance to get back in it. Take that time to take a deep breath. That's why dynamic silence is so important. So you know what? He just pissed me off and label it. It seems like I'm getting pissed about this. You say it enough times to yourself, you're going to, it's going to diffuse it in you internally and you're going to jump right back in the game and you're probably going to knock them off of, their, off of their game behind that because that was usually their intention that they do that, is to throw you off your game so that they, they can have a better chance of winning. That's, uh, that's, that, I, I, that's perfect, Troy. I, I don't know if I would necessarily add anything to that, but that, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. That's a really great point. You're stupid. Your whole being and the way you are. What happens when you get attacked? Just like I said, there's the amygdala activation. Once that amygdala activate, activates, it's a little almond in the frontal part of your brain. It's not that big, but it has a big effect on you. You start shutting down your brain. You can't think straight. We've all been there. As soon as we get attacked, we're fighting it. All of a sudden, our, we get tunnel vision. It gets narrow. We're not hearing everything the other person's saying. We're getting frustrated. We're going to start resorting back to what we know, which is to attack back or to cower and give in. What happens when we attack and then make the activation ha happens? That's his fight. We're going to get into a fight mode. We're going to be arguing back and forth. And guess what? We're making the other person dumber and they're making us dumber. If neither one of us are thinking clearly, we're not going to have a good conversation. We're going to be struggling and we're not going to get anywhere. We're wasting each other's time. How many times have you guys been in an argument and nothing got resolved? Because both of y'all are fighting and nobody's listening to the other side. I hear what they have to say because you've attacked me. So I'm, my, my response is I'm going to attack back. Or you might consider flight. Your next step is I'm going to get out of that situation as fast as I can. I'm going to run. I'm going to leave the conversation. I'm going to figure out a way to get out of that room. When you do that, if you fight or if you flee, what have you accomplished? At some point in time, we talk about the elephant in the room and you guys have heard it. It's always going to be there. It's still there. You're going to have to have that tough conversation again at some point. And the more you flee or fight, you're never going to get it accomplished. Just in regards to the amygdala, I think a lot of us are aware of this already. But just to add some clarity, right? The amygdala is a part of the brain that's often referred to as the reptilian brain or the caveman brain, hence the pictures there. And something I've always found, I'm no, I'm no neuroscientist, right? So uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily stating this as fact. My understanding of the evolution of the human brain, the amygdala is so ingrained in what we do 
It's actually the only part of the brain that has not evolved since caveman times. The amygdalas that we have now that exist in our brain are built exactly the same way they were millions and millions of years ago when we were hunter-gatherers running around in loincloths. And it's the only part of the human brain that hasn't actually grown and developed and changed over time. And so what, 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 why does that matter for us? Well, it's, so, it's such a, a, a nucleus, as it were, to how we process data that we have to be acutely focused on how it operates in order to control it. Because this default mechanism of fight, flight, or make friends, or I want to defend myself, or you know, all the th reasons that, that Troy just mentioned in regards to why people get mad because uh, you know, someone's not listening to them, or they're under pressure, or simply just because they can, those are all directly related to amygdala activation. You don't feel listened to, you get upset, your amygdala cuts on, you start to defend yourself by fight or flight, and you're no longer collaborative, right? If you're under pressure, you're feeling a lot of heat from somewhere else in your environment, and then your, your amygdala is already on every time you interact with someone because of everything that you're carrying around with you, the proverbial chip on the shoulder, as it were. And then just because they can, you know, for those, I know some of you are part of our, um, bargaining course that started yesterday we were talking about the difference between influence and manipulation during that class yesterday and just because someone can that is a manipulative technique what they've learned through practice is if they can stay angry and push people to a limit then they can in fact manipulate their decision making which again is all about the amygdala as long as I show anger, as long as I show that I'm being defensive or being attacking, that I'm going to trigger their amygdala, they're not going to be thinking clearly, and then they'll probably give me what I want because they're off kilter. And so this amygdala thing, right, we kind of, it's, it's easy to breeze through it, but being acutely aware of how it functions and how it actually distracts us from optimum performance is really the first step to being an optimum performer, being in that 1%. Right, as the old the old cliche, uh, the first step to solving any problem is is first identifying the problem, and so that's some of what we're doing here, and that ties right into if we accept that these problems are going to happen, right? And uh, Troy talks a lot about this in the caviar class, right? The the idea of acceptance, if we accept that these things are going to happen to us, as opposed to hope that it doesn't happen, right? We all that's that's kind of a natural human nature. I hope. That I don't get attacked. I hope that I don't have to deal with this, right? We all know if never split the difference, hope is not a strategy. But when we start to accept, it makes us much more quick to stay cognitively flexible in the moment. So the accusation thought it is amazing because it gives you the freedom to do whatever it is that you needed to do or to ask or address whatever it is that you came in needing to ask or address. And so if you're concerned that, um, that this person already thinks that you're too assertive, right, already kind of has that preconceived notion about you, um, then you can just simply say, you're going to think that what I'm about to ask you is, is really assertive. You might say, um, you're going to feel really overwhelmed by what I'm about to ask you. Um, you might say if if you're concerned that they're being that you think that you're too emotional that they think that you're too emotional, um, you might say you're probably going to think that I'm bringing emotion into this, um, and so it helps if that person you can tell that person already thinks that about you by addressing that dynamic you're able to diffuse it. Um, there's a question in the chat that asked, well, what if, you know, what if this, that person didn't already think that, is this going to make it worse? Um, Sandy, yeah, I, I kind of want to hand that to you because I know you have a lot to say. <laughs> um, you can't plant a negative, okay? If they don't feel that way, they don't feel that way. You're not going to suddenly put that thought in their head, okay? Um, and even if you do, you're mitigating at the same time. So it's, it's not going to make it happen if it's not already there. 
So even if they're not thinking that whatever you're saying is going to be too expensive and you're saying, well, you're going to think this is so expensive. And they're like, well, I mean, they might be thinking money's no object. All they're going to do is just say, well, no, not really. And just go on with the next thing. You're not going to plant that negative. Okay. How you plant a negative is by saying, I don't want you to think I'm being picky, but I really don't like that shade of blue. Okay. You just, you, you threw it out there. And what's the first thing they're going to think when they hear, I don't want you to think I'm being picky. They're going to think, oh, you're being picky. You know, I don't want you to be mad at me for doing this. So they know that whatever you're saying right now is going to make them mad. Okay. That's the wrong way to do it. So you, you, you don't want to do that's, that's basically, um, that's the denial. You want to avoid the denial. You want to just point out the negative. You don't want to try and justify it or explain it. So just say, yeah, you, you may think I'm being picky. I don't like that shade of blue. Instead of saying, I don't want you to think I'm being picky because that's telling them that they're going to be that way. Okay. You're not, you, that's not mitigating anything. That's actually raising it. So you want to be very careful that you word this correctly, but you cannot introduce the negative. If it's not already there, you're not going to make it be there because you're saying it. So don't be afraid of that. Okay. Um, Absolutely. Do you have more to say about that preconceived notions? Um, no, just that, um, yeah, that essentially a lot of times we come into these situations kind of fearing like, well, that person already thinks this about me. How can I possibly talk to them about it? Or this person already believes that this isn't going to work. There's no convincing them. Um, it is shocking the power of what an accusations audit can do. It demonstrates self-awareness. It demonstrates um, It demonstrates concern and care for the other side. Because essentially, when you are giving the accusations audit properly, the way Sandy was talking about, um, then what you're saying, in essence, is I understand your experience right now. And I understand that I'm making this hard for you in some way. Um, and so even if, you know, you're not really, because you're probably not being too emotional, <laughs> or you're probably not being too assertive, um that doesn't really matter because it's that person's experience and so then we're able to subvert those preconceived notions move on and continue to make a deal actually this quote comes from salavi and mayer who together wrote a dissertation on emotional intelligence for their phd back in 1990 um, generating emotion so as to assist thought the, the way that I would clear that up is generating positive emotions to assist thought because those are the only emotions that do assist with your ability to process. And to your specific question, do more do some people have a harder time doing that? And the answer is yes, um, because we've been conditioned that negotiation is a, a, comp a competitive exercise. We know that both parties are better off if both parties cooperate. But the dilemma is we don't know what the mindset of the, is the other side. So we default to the worst. That's what our brain does. And the worst is being competitive. So you go in wanting to compete with somebody who you believe is going to be competing with you and you both wind up with worse outcomes. It's all in your ability to change your mindset. The harder it is for you to change your mindset and understand that it's not about you, the harder it is going to be for you to generate those positive emotions that are going to assist the way you process things. And so, yes, some people have a more difficult time than others. Who are those people? For example, the assertives have a harder time doing it. The assertives are there to get things done, period. And they don't have a lot of time to think about accessing or or generating appropriate emotions to assist in thought. They've got a game plan. They know where they want to go. So it's harder for the assertive because anything that comes outside of their game plan is viewed largely as a failure for that. And so for the assertives, it, it takes a little bit more effort. What is driving them? If you demonstrate it, they're more likely to sign, they're more likely to perform, they're more likely to refer you. Your demonstration of tactical empathy will make a determination whether they wanna work with you again. Go back to what Kent talked about earlier. If he had been better at tactical empathy, 
their anger level with him in the moment would have come down sooner, even if they didn't make the agreement. Because of his demonstration of tactical empathy, they will make a decision that they want to work with them again or with him again. With sales, especially with things like this, how much of this is logical versus emotional? Uh, I got to tell you something. Uh, everything is emotional. I can lay out the brain science right now and explain, explain at length why the neuroscience supports the fact that we do not have a logical thought in our head because we tell ourselves that. But n the neuroscience tells us uh, unequivocally or unequivocally, I always have trouble with that word, but I love it. <laughs> you know, I, I can't pronounce the words I want to use. But you know what they mean. That's what's important. I, 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 know, I know when I see it. Um, every thought that we have in our head, the neuroscientists are not certain whether thoughts start in the emotional side of, of our brain, uh, which is known as the limbic system, or simply go through the limbic system. But we do not possess a thought that our emotional apparatus, our limbic system, is not intertwined in. Neuroscience which means we don't have a thought that lacks emotion. We don't make a decision without emotion. And, and actually, interestingly enough, further on, they've shown that if you pull emotions out of our decision-making process, we actually can't make a decision. We can follow directions. If this happens, do that. But we can't make decisions because we can't weigh things out because we weigh things out based on what we care about. So every decision every salesperson is trying to get somebody to make is in fact a decision that has emotion interwoven with it. Hmm. Interesting. So when it comes to things like uh, objective thinking per se, when you're trying to take a third party or a third, yeah, third person view or removing as much emotion as possible from it to simply look at facts rather than letting emotion getting involved in things. And I like to think of that as objective or logical thinking right? How much does logic, I mean, I, I understand what you just said with the emotion being part of everything, but how much does logic play into a, a sale or a decision-making process with someone? I mean, there's people that are buy off of emotion just like right like that. And then there's a lot, a lot more like the accounting type people I like to call them that are very logical, very numbers oriented. How, how much does that play into actually getting someone to commit to and follow through on a deal? Or is it well, really emotional? Well, what is their logic to start with? So, yeah, everybody thinks they have a logical process, but at some point in time, you have to uh, evaluate, you know, give a value to the facts. You know, what matters here? What's important? Start putting valuations on things. Value is based on what we care about. So, you know, there's, there's our value issues are going to start with how we weigh things out emotionally. And then, then the mind bender, then, then the, and this is what we refer to in the book as bending reality. Loss, every, if you're a human being, and so this only applies to human beings, lost things, lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain. That's from prospect theory. Mm. Danny Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics in 2002 because this is, a fact of human life. What does that mean? $5, when I pay for it, I got to get $10 in return in value, at least, or I'm not going to make the deal. Hmm. If you're offering me something that gives me a 20% rate of return on my investment, that's inadequate. I need a 100% rate of return on my investment. So you're pitching gain to me based on neutral third-party valuations of what a dollar is worth and what the return on investment is. No matter how much you lay that out, I'm not going to weigh it that way because I'm always going to overestimate the value of the dollars that I've spent, mm. and I'm always going to underestimate mm. the value that I've received. And, and and the value you received in a dollar, I mean, in, in terms of like value doesn't necessarily have to be just dollars back, right? I mean, it's whatever we perceive as value back, correct? 
Right. Now, and then we got to, we got to start, I got to start getting into your head to find out what you perceive as value. Yeah. So it's not always with the dollars and cents. All right, guys, we're going to talk about inflection today, tonality. Now I realize if you're thinking right now, and you know, that's just really mundane stuff, but the mastery level, the black belt skill level here is in a slight subtle touch that makes all the difference in the world. And it's at the end of a statement that you really want to land well, where it inflects up, almost as if it was a question. That makes sure that something that's really important that you have to land is going to land without causing them to get their guard up. I'll give you an example. We're in a training session and we're telling people that labeling a negative in advance doesn't plant a negative. Now, this scares a lot of people. So we tell them about it theoretically and they say, okay, you know, it kind of goes sort of past them. But then when we talk about actually doing it, it scares them. So we go through it. We say, all right, we want you to label these negatives in advance. They go, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. That'll, that'll plan a negative. Now, we told them earlier that it doesn't, and I've got to remind them of that, but gently. Now, I could say, so when we told you earlier that labeling a negative in advance doesn't plant it, you thought we were wrong. Now, my tone of voice inflecting down is kind of harsh, and there's a pretty good chance that saying it like that may cause it to land hard and cause their guard to be up. And I don't need the guard to be up. So instead, I need to say it. So when we told you before that labeling a negative in advance doesn't plant the negative, you thought we were wrong? Now saying it like that the second time makes sure it lands. I could say you thought I was wrong, as if I think you're wrong. Or can say, you thought I was wrong? As if I'm genuinely questioning. I said it the second way, and the person we were teaching said, oh, no, I guess not. And that's exactly the way I needed it to land. So tonality at the end ensures that what you have to have land will land the way you want it to so that they think about it it triggers the thought pattern that you want it to think, and it doesn't cause their guard to come up. Inflecting up at the end is a master negotiator move and mastery of tonality. So in dealing with a client that's just generally angry, we've had multiple snags every time we have a conversation, it results in a minor explosion. Uh, almost to the point to where you hesitate to even call and talk to him. Is it okay to just go for the jugular and say, you seem really angry about this and just open the floodgate? Is that too aggressive or do you just, just go for it? Um, all right. So I'm, I need some clarification. So I'm going to ask you, you said that you're going to go for the jugular and be aggressive. What about, it seems like you're angry screams aggression to you well the aggression comes with uh for instance we may i may call and have a conversation with a possible delay or something like that and it it results in uh it results in an angered response that seems to be unfocused and before long it's well is the other agent even doing his job and in just trying to recenter the conversation back to to get to something we can actually diffuse instead of these just random uh, shots fired. Do right. we, uh, do I go for the jugular and try and see what, what the, the brightest fire is? Right. Okay. So I get you. So you, instead of uh, going for the jugular, you're talking about going at the emotion directly, not beating yeah. around the bush. Yeah. And the answer to that is always going to be yes, yes, okay. yes, 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 yes. Okay. Look, if they explode at you, if they're screaming at you in a, in a difficult conversation, one of three things is occurring. you got to figure out which one it is. The first one is they're under tremendous pressure on their side from somewhere. The second thing is you're not listening. They're telling you something consciously or subconsciously, and you're not picking it up. The third reason is they're trying to manipulate you. Either way, you got to figure out which one it is. And the only way to do that is to go directly at it. 
So excuse my French, but if I'm going off at you in an elevated tone, and this is, you know, this is not the first time I've done it. And you say to me, seems like you're, you're angry. I'm probably going to go off on you more yeah. because it's abundantly clear that I'm angry. It, it, so, it, it, you know, it seems like this really did a lot to piss you off. Sorry for my language, but hitting it directly on it, you're going to, you're probably so angry with me right now. You want to smack me in the face with a brick. Okay. Hit it directly because if you dance it around it, they'll think that you're, you're ignorant or if you ignore it, it's going to come back and bite you later in the conversation. But if this guy or woman, if this is happening to you multiple times by the same person, you're missing something. There's, okay. there's something going on with them that you need to figure out what it is or else you're going to stay in this cycle. As reminders, be very aware of your tone. The most well-executed skill delivered with poor tone. I, I, I don't know, Sandy, if you, could, if, you, if you were to put a percentage on it, and I realize I'm, I'm, uh, I'm dropping... You know, dropping this on your head. I didn't prepare you for it. I'm, I'm, I'm catching you off guard. If you were going to put a percentage to it about how much a well-executed skill would be negatively affected by poor tone of voice, if you were just going to guess, right? Not something I'm necessarily going to hold you to, but I know you have a great feel for this stuff with the background that you have as a crisis negotiator. What, what would you say? Well, to me, tone is the most important thing. So if your tone is wrong, no matter what you're saying, the person is going to take it the way they perceive it. So you ha- you've lost complete control if your tone is bad. So I would say it's up there really high, really high, 90%, if not higher. Tone is yeah. extremely important. Yeah, 90%. Wow, that's, that's, that's a pretty big percentage. So you're only, you're only 10% effective if the tone of voice doesn't come with it. That's just amazing. That's, that's it could simple. be higher. Tone is important. Tone, tone, tone means everything. Tone is the first thing that someone notices about you. So if your tone is um, comes across as negative, the rest of your interaction, unless you can fix that tone right away, is going to remain negative. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, that's a great point. And negative covers it's such a broad stroke of the brush, right? Because negative could be you come off as arrogant. Or you come off as, right? And we, I think we've all done this at certain times where we deliver things with a tone of voice that says, I think that you're stupid. Or I think that, you know, your opinion holds no water. And all of that comes across in our tone and what perceived intention might be from the other side. Something that always blew my mind. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Derek Gaunt. Um, and I may have mentioned this last time, and this is just a reiteration, but it really blows me away. One of the things he told me early on was when he was in crisis negotiation and he had to choose to put some money on the phone. And if his choices were somebody that was fully versed in the skills and understood all of the intricacies inside and out of all the skills very well versed, but their tone of voice was really bad. And then the other choice was somebody that doesn't really know the skills at all and still has a lot to learn. However, this person has a fantastic tone of voice. Like if he had to choose between those two people, what would he choose? And to my surprise, he said he'd always choose the person with the tone of voice because if their tone of voice is extremely accurate and on point and executed well, he knew that in a crisis negotiation scenario, they would always come to resolution. It might take a while, but the chances of them coming to resolution were almost, you know, they're up there at 94% close rate. And then the person that had great skills, but their tone was always off, is a really good chance things are going to go bad. And I, I always thought that was a really interesting perspective. How can you be so good at the skills and then... A skill expert doesn't want to use you 
just simply because of the tone of voice. And I always thought that was amazing. So things to keep in mind. We have a question that just came up in the chat. It ah, says, yes, how, how do you evaluate your own tone? That's a great question. And so a few things, a couple of them will be reiterations from last time. The first part is always assume that you have something to learn when you go into a negotiation. A lot of us get off point because we assume we're going in because we got to educate the other side. We got to lay out the data, facts, justifications. We need them to understand. So we have to explain it to them. And our intention is to go in to teach and inform and educate. And it actually needs to be switched to we go in knowing that we have things to learn and that's why we're at the table. And so that's the first part because that mindset leads to genuine curiosity. If we stay in a mindset of genuinely curious, it'll come across in our tone. You can hear the question mark at the end. And so that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is we all have our triggers in the moment. We all know when we feel ourselves getting cranked up could be for any number of reasons. When you feel that coming on, that should be a trigger for yourself internally that you just need to go ahead and switch into the late night FM DJ voice. When you feel that bubbling up inside of you, just focus on slowing down your cadence and that'll help you keep in control. 